Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Caleb, I am so glad to be back in the saddle again. I am glad that you're back. It's like, it feels like the first time. It feels like the very first time. Like first time. Yeah, uh, it's it's like the return of the Mac. Are you, f- you familiar with Return of the Mac? No, we're, I thought we were naming songs. Wasn't that the bit we were doing? Return of the Mac, Mark Morrison. Not sure what he was returning from. That's the only song I've ever heard by him. Look it up. It's a great (laughs) hit. Uh, No, I'm back in black. Yeah, Um, uh, sort of. I'm back. You're not sleeping. No, I'm not asleep. I'm back. I'm so glad uh, for you and Jason doing the show last week. Other Jason. I think that turned out really well. It was good to have him here. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, and uh, and also has the same first name as me, so it's pretty easy. <laughs> it was great for me. I didn't have to memorize somebody else's <laughs> name in the script. <laughs> yeah, because you know me, I just look at a script and that's that's it. He'll say anything. That's all that. <laughs> yeah, Jason filled in admirably for Jason last week. So thank you, Jason Bernal. It was easy for him. He knew a lot about the topic. He turns out he knows about a lot of things. So just threw a microphone in front of him, and away he went. Yeah, he'll be back. He'll be back. Definitely. Yeah, you could say Return of the Mac. (laughs) I don't think we should. No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Leave that one in the 90s. (laughs) Ah, yes. So why don't you tell us, Jason, you're you're looking very trim and svelte. What did you do on your two-week vacation? Yeah, I just didn't eat. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a model, and I'm going to not eat. I'm going to become really skinny and weak. Yeah. And so I didn't eat. It worked. No. No, I had COVID. Ugh. I took I took an at home test to prove it. Yeah, I got I was crawling with coronavirus. It Ew. was it was everywhere, and uh, I was out of commission for a few days, and then just stayed away from everyone uh, for the rest of my internment. Yeah, your text messages made zero sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out you should not try to do high finance when you have a <laughs> no. hundred and four degree fever. No, is that all? Hundred and four. It. It got up a little higher at times, but for the most part, it was under control. Hey, man, I'm glad you're feeling better. I saw you eating Taco Bell earlier. That's the first, really the first step to recovery, in my opinion. I think that uh, maybe if I had had Taco Bell earlier, yeah, it, I would have been back faster. You know, that could be the miracle cure in all of this. Well, I didn't Just have Just inject it into Bell our before. veins. I agree. I think we should try it. <laughs> I'm for it. We're big Taco Bell fans. <laughs> uh. We're classy. So classy. We're talking a, We're talking super classy today. Taco Bell and Rolls Royce. <laughs> yeah, they go together really well. I think <laughs> I think we're flexing our high society muscle by bringing up the Rolls Royce as our cocktail of yeah. choice this week while we talk about cars and buying them and all yeah. the stuff that goes along with that. New car, used car, leased car. What's the best? What's the way to go? How much should you spend on a car? It's fraught with controversy. Yeah. Fraught with it. You know what's not? What? This drink. Oh, well, all right. (laughs) Let's talk about this drink. So we're going to get into the Rolls Royce here. Normally, these cocktails come with a lot of controversy. This one, not so much. (laughs) 
Um, one of the ingredients maybe has a little bit of controversy. I'll get into that in a second. But the Rolls Royce is essentially, Jason, uh, we're enjoying a couple of them right now. It's kind of a twist on a perfect martini. Yeah, it's a martini, a perfect martini. And, and when we say perfect martini, folks, just like the Manhattan, when we talked about a perfect Manhattan, we're not saying this is the epitome of a martini. We're just basically saying that we're mixing dry and sweet vermouth in equal parts. That makes it a quote-unquote perfect martini. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically a perfect martini with a, a little extra kick or kind of, well, I'll just say it, kind of a strange flavor thrown in there. And Yeah, it is an odd flavor. That's the addition of Benedictine, which is where most of our controversy will lay today. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's a perfect martini. That's sweet and dry vermouth. Caleb, in a video that we recently did showing how to make, uh, was that when you made a Tom? Uh, no, it wasn't Brooklyn. Tom Collins. It was you made the Brooklyn, which yeah. is a version of the Manhattan. A perfect uh, Manhattan. You described to our audience the difference between a sweet and dry vermouth. <laughs> uh, what was that again? One is sweet and the other is dry. That's right. So if you put half of each of those in the drink, uh, you end up with a perfect Manhattan, or in this case, a martini. Though this perfect martini is not called a martini, it is called a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Uh, is that just because of the Benedictine? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's the oddball or the, the wild card in all of this. I did see someone refer to this as a wet martini, which they're is kind of strange because they're, they're all, all wet. wet. Even a dry martini is wet. Anyway. And that's interesting that vermouth isn't referred to as dry versus wet vermouth. Right. Or sweet. I guess dry is kind of a flavor, though, isn't it? Sweet versus yeah. dry. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet wine, dry wine. Sweet reds, dry reds. Okay. But not wet. Not wet. That doesn't make any sense. All cocktails are wet. Yes. Otherwise, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the Rolls Royce, before I get into all of the ingredients, basically... When you think of Rolls-Royce, you think of like the epitome of luxury. So when this drink was invented, uh, and by all accounts, 1930, it was published in the Savoy Cocktail Book by one Harry Craddock. Usually, when we refer to Harry Craddock, we are figuring out where he stole his recipe from. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it sounds like everybody is willing to give him credit for this one. Oh, okay. This so, is a Craddock. Yeah, whether, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Jury's out a little bit on this one for me, but basically the Rolls-Royce had been around and it had become a status symbol for going on 20, 25 years when this drink was invented. And that's really what, what they were attempting here was just you know, this is not just a martini. This is a luxury martini. Yeah, not a whole lot of controversy there, but the ingredients is where we'll get into the controversy. What we whipped up here today is two ounces of London dry gin. We use Tanqueray, a half an ounce of Italian vermouth or sweet vermouth, a half an ounce of dry vermouth or French vermouth, a quarter ounce of Benedictine. This is the wild card. And then a lemon twist. So basically uh, making this drink, if you're, you're following along at home, Pretty easy. Get yourself a mixing glass and some ice cubes. Put all the ingredients in and stir away for 40 to 50 seconds. And when it's well chilled, strain it into a chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with a twist of lemon and enjoy. And then pop into your luxury sedan. But don't drive. Oh, yeah. Wait. I guess you'd have to. If You, you probably have a limo driver or, yeah. or a, a driver on the yeah, payroll yeah. If, you're, if you've got a Rolls Royce. So, you know what? Have at it. Maybe. Maybe. If that's allowed. Only. Right. <laughs> <laughs> ah, anyway. 
You know what? Don't do any of that. Don't do that. Then Enjoy look res- at Rolls Royces on your phone. <laughs> Enjoy responsibly. <laughs> if you're if you're in the market for a Rolls Royce, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> and by the end of this, this episode, you might be changing your mind. So. Yeah. <laughs> so getting into the history of Benedictine, uh, this is where there's a little bit of controversy. It's said to have have been invented or created over 500 years ago. Jason, what do you think about that? It sounds like monks. <laughs> monks. <laughs> yes. Monks made it. I was going to say it sounds like marketing or merchandising. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we were close. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but no, you said monks and they're they're involved here. So um, it's credited to Alexander Legrand uh, who released this product commercially in 1863. Uh, but claimed that it's based on a recipe that he found in an old text from the year 1510. All right. It's uh, specifically credited to a monk named Don Bernardo Vincelli. Probably the, an Augustinian monk. <laughs> try the Benedictine Abbey of ah, Camp in Normandy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's why you hear I say Benedictine, you think monks, that's why. Yeah. So monks certainly do have have a history of distilling and, and brewing, brewing and all of that kind doing, of doing making cool, delicious things. Honestly, it's it's a marketing ploy, I think. Uh, but it worked. Uh, it wasn't it's a real been thing. around for a long time. A lot of these liqueurs are said to uh, have have been created in a monastery somewhere. If so, cool, I guess. But I don't know. It sounds like a good way to sell liqueurs to me. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It works on me. So, Jason, I poured a little bit of uh, Benedictine into a glass because this is definitely adding a different element to the drink, and I kind of wanted to single this out. You, you have yours over there? I've yeah. got mine. Okay. Let's try it. Let's try a little bit of this. Hmm. It's sweet. It's sweet. It's strange. It's it's kind of medicinal. Yeah, there is a medicinal aftertaste. It's got a bunch of weird spices in it that I can't quite place. It's thick. When, yeah. when I say sweet, like it's it's um it's like an overly sweetened cough syrup. It's syrupy, yeah. It's definitely syrupy. That's pretty potent by itself. I mean, there's a lot of spices there. It is the least represented ingredient in this drink, but it really does come through. Oh yeah, you can taste it big time in this Rolls Royce. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Uh, so Jason, I'm more of a dirty martini fan. I know you like the regular martini with a lemon twist. So this is essentially that with some sweet vermouth and some Benedictine. How does this stack up to a, a regular mar- martini for you? Uh, it is behind a regular <laughs> martini to me. Okay. I, I like I like a dry martini. I like the dry vermouth. I like the gin forwardness of a London dry gin mm-hmm. or even a fancier gin in a martini. Uh, this feels a lot more like a Manhattan to me. And it's probably because of the sweet vermouth in there. And the Benedictine is just, it's really sweet. So it's it's pushing into a sweet section of drinks, but it's a it's a weird it's a strange kind of spiced sweetness that is it's not so dessert tasting. Yeah, it's not desserty. It's it's sweet and sugary definitely, but there's there's some other spices there that are are bringing the sweetness down. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's different. I like a dirty martini, so I, I like mine to taste like olives. Or in your your case, you say armpits, but whatever. <laughs> I like my martini to taste like gin. And uh, I think the Benedictine, and I don't know if it's the sweet vermouth as well, is really kind of covering it up. So it's not for me. Rolls Royces probably aren't for me ever in my life. So I guess it's all right. It's cool with me. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't made up my mind on this. It's interesting. What I think I want to do is I don't think I've had a quote unquote perfect martini. 
We I could like do it without the Benedictine and yeah, see if we like that. Exactly. I, I think I should try that. Maybe that. Uh, maybe that's next on the list. But I don't know the Benedictine. I think I can drink one of these. I'm not going back for another one though. Yeah, me neither. It really does remind me of when we did the Brooklyn, that variation on the Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when we used the dry vermouth instead of the sweet vermouth, it kind of it just took away from some of the things that were making the drink a favorite of mine. Yeah, uh, like in the Manhattan, I really like the the way the sweet vermouth plays with the rye, and in a martini, I really like the way the gin and the dry vermouth go together and have that dry kind of gin forward taste and this seems like kind of just a crisp clean yeah this is where this is sugary a little bit i don't sounds weird a little little sticky (laughs) yeah yeah sticky i think we could throw in there on the rolls not a not a wet martini i'd call this a sticky martini maybe that's what wet means in cocktails that's really funny though it reminds me of home alone remember home alone and home alone 2 they were the wet bandits and they were the sticky bandits Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a good movie (laughs) soon it'll be christmas movie time (laughs) All right, so enough of that. Jason, what do you say we talk finance? A ka-ching. Caleb, today I want to talk about buying cars. Buying cars is a emotional topic for yeah. many. I hate deal buying with. cars, Jason. Well, I hate it. Yeah, see, it elicits strong reactions. It's something that the way that our infrastructure in this country is built, you may require one uh, to succeed in life. So a car is a valuable tool. Lots of people need one. There are so many different kinds out there. They are probably the most marketed product Mm -hmm. that we have uh, in our country. Uh, So it's fraught with a lot of... People have a lot of opinions, Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of opinions, and I know you do too. Sure. And I want to talk about how this fits into your personal financial plan, buying a car. It's it's one of our largest purchases that we make aside from a house. Mm -hmm. It's a recurring purchase usually. Although, how many times have we seen a car purchase that's more than a home? Often. You see some of these, uh, these big SUVs all decked out. You see them sitting, you know, a ninety thousand dollar Escalade sitting in the driveway of a seventy five thousand dollar house. Yeah, out where we are, that's a lot more common. <laughs> where where real estate prices are so much lower than right. the rest of the country. But yeah, you see that it is. It's a large purchase purchase that people make. It it takes up a lot of our capital for people that are out there that want to be financially independent. They want to retire mm-hmm. and they want to retire early. Figuring out how to make a good decision when purchasing vehicles is really important. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk about that today. I've written about it a little bit. I know you and I have talked about it quite a bit. Um, so I wanted to talk about rules for buying a car or you know, rules of thumb for buying a car. And before we dive into all of our opinions, I wanted to give some stats. I like stats. Uh, yeah, I looked, looked these up. I refresh myself on these from time to time. But I like to know what the median household income is in mm-hmm. our country. Uh, last year it was about $68,000 household household. Okay. That's the median. Uh, so hopefully that's filtering out some of the, the extremes, the yeah. outliers. Um, the average new car price in 2020, according to Kelly blue book was $37,876. Wow. And Edmonds reported that just shy of $40,000. So mm-hmm. somewhere between 37 and $40,000 is the average price. And is that factoring in trucks and into the mix? It's everything. Is it's that, new light it. vehicles. So, yeah. and so not heavy duty vehicles. So if you took half ton pickup trucks and threw that in there, I mean, or, or you just did that by itself, I mean. Oh, yeah. It would be weighing. weighing I don't think you can get into an entry level 
four-wheel drive crew cab pickup for under fifty or sixty thousand dollars now. Yeah, and and how people are paying for that stuff is by financing them. So, oh, before I go to that, the average used car cost I wanted to look this up to is twenty-three thousand one hundred and sixty-nine dollars. Wow! So a significant decrease from the new, but people are financing these. That's the, still some cabbage. Let's think about this, Caleb. The av- if the average new car price is thirty-seven. Uh-huh. to $40,000. The average auto loan is $30,000. Yeah. So people are financing almost all of these purchases. The average auto loan is $30,032. The average term for an auto loan is 68 months. That is insane. That's five years and, and eight some. months. <laughs> yeah. It's five years and then longer. It's cl- <laughs> It's five years and then eight months. <laughs> uh, the average auto loan payment per month is $503 per wow. month. So I just wanted to kind of set that. Hopefully I, that's probably not too shocking to all of you out there. I just, I know that everyone has had to deal with buying a car and uh, those prices, first reaction Caleb, to hearing those numbers. Well, you know, first reaction is, I mean, I I had some expectations going in, but you know how I feel about car shopping. I'm of the camp that I buy something and I drive it till the wheels fall off because I do not want to go car shopping. Um, It drives me insane. I don't like dealing with salesmen. Uh, I don't like people calling me and emailing me because I happen to stop by and take a look at a a car. Um, it, It makes me absolutely crazy. These numbers don't totally shock me. What does shock me is how willing people are to go into debt for these things. Well, it seems like most families are totally okay with spending more than half of their annual income on a car. I I think that uh, your vehicle of choice, whatever you're driving around nowadays, is way more of a status symbol than it used to be. And I I think that, quite honestly, people don't, in their mind, when they're going to, to... look for a car and they're financing, they're not looking at that average auto loan of $30,000. They're looking at, hey, I can swing 500 bucks a month. If it means having this car that, you know, makes me look more successful than I really am, or or is just playing into that image, $503 a month for the image that I want to convey is fine by me. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't get there. Uh, $503 a month is a lot. So just to clarify, I wasn't saying that I'm okay with it. <laughs> no, I, you're you're being so much more understanding of the average person, and I probably you you and I we've all met folks that have you know paid this much for cars, and it's very common. The reason that these are averages is because people do it. We always say averages are averages yeah. for a reason, and we know these people. So our our mission is not to be scolds talking about cars, and why can't everybody just drive pieces of junk like Jason and Caleb <laughs> and be okay with it, like. I don't want to. I don't want to rip into people, but I do want folks to realize what the opportunity cost is that they are paying when they do this. The I want. I want folks to question their motives when they are. If it's if it's if you're buying a car as a status symbol, that's probably not the best reason to buy the car that you're going to buy. It probably is the most affordable way, though, to get that status symbol, right? People at work see what you drive every day. They don't see where you live every day. Um, you and I worked in banking, and bankers are, are honestly are some of the worst people with their finances. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, they believe in debt, and they know how to work the system. And um, you know, some of the cars that pulled up, and you're like, "Man, this guy's got—he's doing the same thing I'm doing. What am I doing wrong?" Yeah. Well, maybe nothing. <laughs> well, they're probably just taking a lot 
bigger percentage of their income to yeah. make car payments. You know, what's before we move on, and I'm, I'm sorry to cut your train of thought here, what is surprising to me on this, Jason, is that in 2008, we had a horrible financial collapse in the United States, and the auto industry was one that was hugely affected by this. Yeah. And one of the things that we went back to that was to blame was how outrageously expensive vehicles were. And the government, the taxpayers, we bailed out some of these automakers. Mm -hmm. And you would think that car prices would come down, right? We never saw that. No. And they're going up at an astronomically, I mean, used car prices. Right now, go try to buy a used car. Yeah. It's, It's like... It's like trying to buy a house around here right now. <laughs> if you find one, you better buy it sight unseen or somebody else is going to buy it. So that's driving the price up too. This is all insanity to me, but I'm sorry. Maybe a little bit an, of a tangent. It, maybe it's an indication that the economy is doing awesome and everyone is sitting on vast stores of personal wealth hitherto <laughs> unforeseen. We know there's more cash out there than there was this time last year. So that probably does have a little bit to do with it. People have more disposable income and they're looking of, looking at places they can dispose of it to. And a car payment is a great place. But hopefully that sets up our, our mission here. I don't, I don't want to just yell at folks. I think people are going to see where we're going to come down on this one probably. Well, yeah. <laughs> let's be responsible. So if you are listening, you want to make a good choice. Yes, you like nice things. I like nice things. I like Caleb, nice things. you love nice things too. We have exquisite taste. Um, you, if you're responsible, you want to know how to buy a vehicle responsibly. How much should you be spending relative to your income or your net worth? That sort of thing. That's the stuff that I want to kind of get to when we talk about this. So let's talk about rules of thumb for buying a car. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. And this is what I think. You tell me what you think. I think that there are two rules of thumb that you can use kind of interchangeably. I think that you should spend no more than 5% of your net worth on a car. So sounds good. Sounds good in theory. Yes. What if you don't have a net worth and you need a car? <laughs> then you should spend as little as possible. Okay. <laughs> That's a valid question. If if we so if we don't have a net worth, so younger folks, yeah. right? That maybe have a negative net worth. Sure. Just graduated college, school loans. That brings all me the to other my stuff. second rule of thumb, Caleb. Okay. That okay. you should spend no more than ten percent of your gross annual income on a car when you buy a car. Gross annual, okay. So ten percent. So you know, you make forty thousand know, dollars a year. That's, that's a four thousand dollar year car. With. So I think using one of those two rules of thumb that makes a lot of sense. So long as you keep your car for at least five years, preferably ten years. How did you come to the the five percent and ten percent numbers, Jason? I pulled them off of the internet. <laughs> The Google? No. 10% has been a rule of thumb. 10% of your income has been a, a famous rule of thumb. It's been championed by folks like Dave Ramsey, um, the Who? financial samurai, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of lot of personal finance, retire early kind of websites. Uh, they've been using this for a long time. It fits into a lot of these uh, rules of thumb, like not spending any more than 28% of your income on ho- housing like your rent or your your mortgage and insurance and and homeowners maintenance and that sort of thing. So it's really pulled out of nowhere. These aren't hard and fast they're, rules. They're rules of thumb. They are rules of thumb. They are just guidelines to make sure that you're kind of okay. The reason I have it at only 10%, you're going to do 10% and you're going to keep the car for 10 years. It's really going to work out to a lot less than mm-hmm. 10% of your income over that time. Uh, 5% of your net worth is actually, that could be a lot high on the higher end. But the reason that there's a net worth rule in here is a lot of folks retire and their income is a lot lower, but they're sitting on $2 million 
and they're only making $40,000 a year, but every single thing that they have is paid for. Why should they only buy a $4,000 car? Their net worth is 3 million bucks or 2 million bucks. Let them buy something a little nicer. And they're probably going to have that car for at least five or 10 years, honestly, right? Because you're not driving around as much. You're not going to work, dropping kids off here and there, all that kind of stuff. So we see it all the time where, you know, we have retirees who are on a fixed budget. Yeah, maybe they're making $40,000 a year now, but you know, they they might go out and buy that $35,000, $40,000 car. It's going to be, they always say it, not me. This will be the last car that I ever buy. Yeah, I hear that a lot. People starting at age 60 and then they live 40 more years. (laughs) They have to go through several cars over 40 yeah. years. Yeah, so these, these rules of thumb are are not to bind anyone, but they are low, I think. Mm-hmm. From Well, if we are, so we're seeing that the median household income is 68000 and the average car goes for forty, that obviously is out of whack with this. So we yeah, know that sure people is. aren't following this. It is conservative, and for a reason. Cars are really bad investments. Jason, I want to highlight something that you just said because it just... I know the numbers, but the way you said it, something just clicked. Median household income is $68,000. We're talking, for the most part, a lot of two-income households to make up that $68,000. Absolutely. And they're probably two cars. Usually. So you might have, if you if you have two new cars, $80,000 in new cars with a household income of $68,000. Well, Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people. There's probably people listening that are in that situation. It's common. And it's because we've figured out that we can just make that payment and we'll make it work because you have to have a car. You're always going to have a car payment. And that's just the way it is. And you need a nice car. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be stranded on the side of the road. No, and I'm not going to drive a piece of junk. You don't want something that's going to nickel and dime you with all the repairs. Does that lead us into the next point? It really does. (laughs) Uh, Cars are bad investments, Caleb. There are a few that are all right, probably. As a whole, your daily driver is a bad investment. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say that. How uh-huh. about the car that you're going to drive 10,000 miles a year, or maybe not even that much. But oh, man, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> the car that you're going to be driving regularly is a bad investment. It's going to go down in value. It's like buying a hammer and expecting it to go... Actually, hammers hold their value I, I was just going to say, I think a hammer holds its value a lot more. More like a power tool. Something that have you, you ever Have you ever been to an estate sale? <laughs> Those craftsman hammers, I think you can still exchange. I'm telling you, man, just because someone passed away, their stuff is automatically more valuable, especially their tools. <laughs> if you ever go to, a, or, or their tractors, if you ever go to an estate sale. <laughs> That's right. So, oh, you know what doesn't though? Their car. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that will drop in value tremendously. And, and part of the reason that cars are a bad investment is, is because you have to take care of them because you're going to use them. So cars require maintenance you have to put you have to change the oil every 3,000 miles I think you should, everyone should do that or depending some of the newer cars are 10,000 miles oh okay the fancy ones that's okay yeah so you got to change the oil you got to change point. the oil <laughs> you got to change their fluids aren't well eternal and I would say I this too the ones that are typically uh, every 10,000 miles are synthetic and your oil change is probably costing three times the normal <laughs> oil change anyway so you probably work out to about the same so I but on maintenance I did do a little bit of research to okay. figure out about the cost of maintenance, because that is the first complaint that people have. I need to buy a new car so I don't have to spend money mm-hmm. every year fixing it all the time. It's like every time I take the car to the shop, this needs done and this needs done, and I'm spending $500 every time I go to the shop. I hear that all the time. You go, well, how often are you going to the shop? Well, every time I need an oil change. 
okay, so every six months, you're spending $500 versus $500 a month so you don't have the, the hassle? I mean, where's the logic there, Jason? We hear it all the time. Well, I think that it's a lot. It, most of it's just justifying wanting something really nice. So you, you just, you know, that kind of works into your favor if you're not actually writing the math down. But if you look into, I, I checked out consumer reports just mm-hmm. to get average annual maintenance costs based on age of the vehicle. So a five-year-old car, these this was in 2020. So a five-year-old car costs on average $205 a year to maintain. A year? A really? Year. Okay. And a 10-year-old car costs $430 a year. Hmm. That's about double for a twice-as-old car. That makes so sense. That, but that you're, you're talking about really $430, which rings in lower than the average monthly payment for a vehicle. By a, yeah, yeah. By a lot. That's $430 with, a year. With enough left over to buy a nice bottle of hooch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and a three-year-old car wasn't much difference. It was $100 a year, so uh, $100 less than a five-year-old car. Um, that is insanely cheap. Now, if you're buying a $500 car, <laughs> it might cost a lot more. It's probably older than 10 years. and But a $500 car might be what you need to be buying depending on your financial situation. We talked about net worth and income. Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe public transportation or uh, throwing gas money to your, your mom or dad or your friends to get you to work is what you need to do. But what if you can make a $500 car work for a year and you buy another $500 car? Uh, car? That, the that, numbers still work in your favor. And me, Do you have experience with that? <laughs> yes, me personally. I have <laughs> done that. I bought a $1,000 car and I used it for almost six years. And yeah. I did put some money into it, maybe $2,000 over the six years. So that's $3,000 over six years. That's still a pretty good deal. But you looked really cool in that <laughs> Buick LeSabre. Well, that is why I had it. It was purple. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't when it started, was it? <laughs> I think it was a blue think that so. kind of faded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, maintenance is, is kind of a myth that it's too much to justify buying a used car versus a new car. You're not going to save that much on maintenance, I don't think. Uh, foreign cars actually tended to be more expensive at the 10-year-old mark, but think of foreign cars like European cars, like yeah. German cars, BMW, Mercedes, those Volkswagen. kinds of cars. The, the Asian-branded cars, actually, those worked out really well. I went to yourmechanic.com, and I found the lowest maintenance cost for the first 75,000 miles of any car brand, and the lowest maintenance cost for any car brand up to 150,000 miles. And it was all the same cars that you would think that mm-hmm. pop up, like uh, Toyota, Kia, Hyundai, Nissan, Honda, uh, Honda Mazda. Subaru, Subaru and Scion were in there, which were new. Okay. And then Lexus for the 150,000. Which that, is a fancy Toyota. Yeah, right? that actually moved into the to the 150,000 mile club where it was the cheapest. All of those were under $5,000 for the I first 75,000 I see a lot miles. of 10 to 15 year old Lexuses, mostly doctors or chiropractors <laughs> or dentists. They're probably the around. car that they bought when they got started making all their yeah. money, made the payments, and then were like, ugh. I'm just going to keep this now. Well, and this is purely speculation, but you talked about uh, some of the European cars versus some of the Asian cars. Think about it this way. At least around here in Ohio, I can think of multiple Honda plants and Toyota. There there are there are plants around here where these parts are being made. I don't know of any Volkswagen or BMW factories around here. Yeah, that probably has a lot to do with why maintenance is so yeah. much lower on those cars. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I think the maintenance thing is a myth. I, I Anecdotally, I have driven 
used cars that are outside of 10 years old mm-hmm. for the most part. I think mine is now. Yeah. Mine is yeah. now older than 10 years. You know, I've got, I got a nicer van for the family, a Honda Odyssey, but it's still almost 10 years old. Uh, um, and I am not, I'm having, I'm having some issues that pop up, but they're pretty routine. Like the yeah. air conditioner goes out. I need to maybe change bearings. I have to change the oil. That's all built in, but the amount of money I've saved by not buying a $38,000 car that I have to pay $500 a month on, I'm still not even close to to where I would be if I had done that. We've both kind of taken the same approach. I worked at a bank for a lot longer than you did. I was driving, covering six offices at the most, I think at one time. I was driving 35 to 40,000 miles a year. So I'm trying to think of the vehicles I have now. I have a 2007 Dodge Charger. That's my workhorse. You hear me talk about this all the time. It won't die. It won't die. (laughs) And I'm going to keep riding that horse until it does. And when it does, I'll have a nice funeral for it too because she owes me nothing. But um, I'm at 280 some thousand miles on that car. And this is one I, I think of all the time, the maintenance myth. Parts are easy to get. They're relatively cheap other than brakes for some reason. I have to change brakes more frequently with this car and it's a little bit more expensive. I mean, it's been brakes, oil changes, tires. That's about it. When we look at some of these numbers here, that car has paid for itself a long, long time ago. Now, I know that you know we hear stories of those cars that have, have gone 300, 400,000 miles you know, with, without any problems. And, and we think of that a lot of times as, well, that's the exception to the rule. I don't know. I've got a 1996 Chevy pick'em up truck that also won't die, and it looks awful. It's falling apart, but it, you know, it's gonna fall apart before it dies again. That one doesn't owe me much. And our nice car, <laughs> I paid twelve thousand dollars for the the Jetta a few years ago. So again, everything really that I, I have has been low maintenance cost. I've had really good luck with just staying up to up to date on service for the most part. Yeah. I've had fantastic luck with three cars. I always joke about how, you know, my kids are gonna be driving the charger and the, the pickup truck as their <laughs> first car and I owned them before we had kids. I've had great experience with at least three, the the ones that I'm rolling with right now. I know you've had great experience with, you know, we'll say clunkers or whatever, but yeah. You know, there's also, you got to think about it. You know what you've got when you take it to the shop every so often to, to, you know, every six months for an oil change and whatnot. You at least know the car. You know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Think about going out and buying the average used car for $23,000 and maybe it doesn't have a warranty and you're, you're finding all kinds of stuff going wrong with it. It's the idea of the known versus the unknown too. Yeah. That is a good point, Caleb. I think when you're committing, part of these rules of thumb uh, for buying a car is that you commit to driving it for at least five years, mm-hmm. preferably longer, uh, 10 years. If you're going to have a car that long, you're going to know the things that go wrong with it and you're going to be a little more experienced with it. I think when you commit to, this is a big purchase for most people. Yeah. So if it is twenty or $30,000, it's worth learning about it so that you can, you don't have to do the work on it yourself, but at least you understand what kind of stuff goes wrong with it and what kind of service it needs so that you can you know, be prepared to pay and, and keep it maintained so that it lasts a really long time so that you pay less over the long haul. Yeah. You know what? The other thing I think so as being being a proponent of buying used stuff, knowing where it came from really helps too. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I bought a couple of one owner vehicles. You know, one was from a family member. I knew exactly what that car was, 
And another one was from a, a local person that had all of the service well documented. You could tell what you were what you were getting into. Yeah. And the other one had a bulletproof warranty. So <laughs> so that's the other thing to think about too, because things can go wrong. Yeah. Um. So if you are buying used, you know, and I'm not saying some some of those extra warranties that you pay for are probably not worth what you're going to pay. But buying something certified, pre-owned, things like that can go a long way uh, yeah, when things go wrong. But I think that's super important to know the history of the vehicle if you're going to buy used. And that's what a lot of people are afraid of. So they just concede to the idea that, well, I'm going to buy new because then I'll at least know what's going on. Heck, my dad bought a brand new truck that 1,500 miles in the motor blew up. Yeah, I say motor because it was a diesel. And I think that that term applies. Motor for <laughs> diesel, engine for gas, right? I don't know. You grew up on a farm too. Yeah, but we were not we were not motorheads. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, definitely not. But stuff can go wrong with new cars too. And let me tell you, they like to weasel out of warranties, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I w- I, wouldn't you if you warranted but something? Yeah. Ah, that's not covered. So yeah, interesting. We've had great luck with old used stuff. You don't look the coolest all the time, but... And you know what? For most folks that are listening, I, you don't need to buy... You don't need a 20-year-old car. You don't need to be outrageous. I, you yeah, might. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, I drive a 13-year-old car right now, a Honda Accord, and I'm going to keep doing it because I don't mind when I accidentally spill ashes on the <laughs> on the floor when I'm smoking my pipe yeah. or, or if a kid like drops something in the back seat. I don't lose my mind. And yeah, if you've got kids, I don't care how how much you try to keep a car clean or nice. <laughs> they they will find a way to destroy it. So forget buying new with kids. That's another that's another uh, benefit of buying used is that you just <laughs> don't have that stress of keeping a new car super nice. Yeah, I, I like nice cars. So I, I really for most people out there, this is the difference between buying a brand new car and a two or three year old car. Most of the depreciation is driven off of it. Yeah, and you know about where it stands. If it's if it's run without an issue for two or three years already, it's probably gonna keep going pretty well. Um, I think that's most of it. I'm going to throw one more anecdote out there. I I had one one more good experience and good car. I got rid of it because at this point I wasn't driving as much as I thought I was going to. So I had too nice of a car for my commute um, at this point in time. But (laughs) we were looking for a car early on in our marriage. And um, one of one of the old trustees was was about to be retired. And so we, we were looking at new cars. And this was in 2007. I bought a one-year-old car with 20,000 miles on it. The original, uh, not the sticker, but the bill of sale, the contract, everything was in the glove box. I paid half, half what the person before me did. They got one year and 20,000 miles out of that car and lost it. Well, I bought it for half. So, you know, they took a, a bigger bath than that when they traded it in. Yeah. For me, that's when my eyes were really open. And I thought there is no way I'll ever buy a new car. You're, you're paying, like you said, all the depreciation is up front in the first couple of years. So, yeah, it's worth it. The, the other thing I want to talk about, Caleb, I, I, we could talk, we could go on and on about anec- anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. with you and I, just because we've, we've lived this. So it's really easiest for us to get compassionate about driving used cars, I think, and buying them. But let's talk about the money impact. Let's talk about opportunity costs. Yeah. $503 a month is a lot of money. It's more than you can put into a Roth IRA in a year, $503 yeah. a month. I did a little bit of math and thought, well, all right, let's say we're buying a car for $37,000. Well, what if instead you didn't? 
buy mm-hmm. a car. You took your $37,000 and in this hypothetical situation, let's just say you kept driving the car that you had, which if you're like the average American was already pretty new. It's only five years old. You put $37,000 in the S&P 500, 500 five years ago, you would have more than double that. You'd have about $84,000. It's been a pretty good five years. Yeah. And then you could use that to buy a car. The opportunity cost argument I know can be really... It can be used in lots of ways that's that's misapplied. Uh, but seriously, this is a lot of money. Yeah. And just paying yourself your car payment, you could save up enough to flip cars every few years without without ever having to downgrade. So that that's kind of the idea there, right? So uh, we, we obviously recommend paying cash for a car. We know that that doesn't always happen. So when you finance, you got to look at, at numbers other than just the monthly payment. But when you pay that car off and you plan to have it for another five years or so, you should be socking money away, what you normally would for a car payment, into that sinking fund for your next car because, folks, they don't last forever. Unless, unless it's like your truck. <laughs> it seems like it does. <laughs> there will be a day, though. So it, the other thing from an opportunity cost standpoint that I think of is we're very impatient. We want what we want now. And a finance manager is going to tell us, yeah, we drag this out another year or whatever. Uh, you can get what you want. You're not really too focused on uh, how much you're spending. You could price yourself out of the house that you want down the road. You could price yourself out of well a lot of different things. We always talk about sacrifices that we've made throughout our career and being financially flexible. From that standpoint, we've been able to make the career moves that we've wanted to because we had the financial flexibility. A lot of people take every ounce of flexibility that they have and put it towards a car payment. And now they're not flexible anymore. So opportunity costs are endless. Yeah, that's a really it. big point. And then we talk, we help people retire mm-hmm. here. And you taking out too much car or buying too much car can delay your retirement by five years. Yeah. I, I've seen it where mm-hmm. people are like, well, I really want, want the truck. And we're a rural community. We're farm community. We both get it. Pickup trucks are expensive. I love a nice pickup. They're awesome. I'm a tall (laughs) man, Caleb. I wish that I had a nice big truck, and I will get one. I will, when it fits into this rule. I just can't make that work yet. Right now, I'm like the guy from The Simpsons that that gets into his car, and he's like, do you find something humorous (laughs) about my automobile? That's true. I've seen you drive a smaller car than you're in now. Yeah, I was in a prism for crying out loud. I had a prism for a little while. The pill. (laughs) Pride be danged. Your knees were sticking out the windows on either side. Uh, I love a big truck. They're expensive. But we see people all the time. I have had folks that have had to delay financial independence because they just wanted it. So they bought the sixty or $70,000 truck. I just want people to be aware of what they're they're sacrificing. So it's really important to look at the opportunity cost. And if it's that important to you, you can make it happen. It's just that's that's your prerogative. It's like anything else though, save for it. Make it make it an intentional item in the budget. I, I think that we're just so used to getting what we want now because someone says we can, but it does come at a price later on down the road. So that's why I think if if you really want it, like get your net worth up to where it will fit into this rule where it's five percent of your net worth and then by all means, go do it. I, I want people to have nice cars. I think it's awesome. I want to have nice cars, but I want my net worth to be up there. I want to have that financial flexibility, that freedom, the independence. You, you know, we didn't even get into leases. Most of the time... Yeah, go, go. Don't do it. They're usually the most expensive way to own a car. I have seen some people make it work, but I would not do it. Lately, if your lease is coming up now, there's there's been some opportunities where it's worked out well. And yeah. you know what? I've advised some clients, hey, that's great. 
it, it's worked out for you. It doesn't work out for 99, 99% of people. So call yourself lucky and move on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't do it again. Yeah. Some folks I've seen get stuck in a cycle of leasing yes. because they're basically renting the car. And then at the end of the lease, they don't have the car anymore and they really need a car, but they can't afford it nearly as nice of a car as they just had. Yeah. So they have to lease again. Don't do it. Don't lease. That's, <laughs> that's probably all we need to say about that. So Jason, what if you have made the mistake of buying too much car and now you go, how do I, how do I unwind this mess now? <laughs> There's one more point I want to make. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it's it's just about buying a really nice car. And the problem with it is that uh, it kind of piggybacks on when I said that I don't care when I spill stuff in my car. <laughs> if you buy a really nice car, you're going to have to buy all the really nice stuff that goes along with it. Yeah. You need to buy... Driving gloves. Driving gloves. You need to drive... You need to buy some driving moccasins. I can't I can- find my driving <laughs> moccasins anywhere. <laughs> Easy, Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> um, you need a scarf and probably some cool goggles. Yeah. Um, there, there is something to be said for that. Uh, you're paying a lot more for car washes. You got to keep up appearances. If that's what's really important to you, we have to spend a lot of money to take care of the stuff that we've spent money yeah. on. So a, a lot of times we're not considering that when you max out yourself on your car, there's all the other stuff that you have to pay for with it. Like maintenance costs are usually higher if it's mm-hmm. a higher performance vehicle and that sort of thing. But to answer your question, Caleb, if you've already bought too much car, you're out of line with the income rule that we have, 10% of yeah. income. Let, let's say you're underwater too, right? Yeah, you can't you, sell the car for what it's more worth. Than it's worth. Yeah. yeah. I, then my number one recommendation for folks is usually to just commit to driving that car forever. Mm-hmm. Like drive it until it's not a mistake anymore. Drive it until it's 5% of your net worth. So one day you can sit there like Caleb and say, I've had this car for 12 years and I drove it to the moon. Now I'm trying to drive it back. The moon is 250,000 miles away roughly. So I say that because when I hit 250 on the charger, I said, I wanted to drive it to the moon, but now I guess I'm going to have to drive it back. We're going to 500. To the moon again. So basically double down, right? Stay in that yeah. car until it does make sense. Yeah, commit to it. Like don't you know there's no no need to make another mistake. Or if the car is really making you poor because uh-huh. the payments are hogging all of your income, sell it. You can sometimes get a note at the bank for the difference if you're upside down. That would be the Dave Ramsey way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, and and his rule I think is if all of the cars that you own are more than half of your take home pay a year, you need to sell them. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's everything with a motor. He says like boats would yeah. count in this, and hey, we haven't even talked about. I can't that. wait till the boat episode. <laughs> we're, right now, we're, we're talking about things that you need: a car. You need a car to get to work, so you can pay for your car. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, going back to if if you're a couple thousand dollars underwater, and it makes sense for you to just say, "I made a mistake. This was a bad move." I'm going to take my medicine. I'm going to sell the car, and I'm going to pony up the extra couple thousand dollars to be out from underneath this. It's probably a better move. Move if you're way underwater. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Drive it until it makes sense. I see on here you, you've got also what to do if you're stuck in a lease cycle, which we sort of talked about. So what yeah. do you do if you're stuck in that violent cycle? You need to say you need to maybe drive a hoopty if you're really stuck. That hoopty. Hard. Yeah, yeah. You you might need to take a gamble on a thousand dollar car and see how long it gets you while you save up some money to replace the car. You know what the great thing about having a $1,000 car is that it's always worth about $1,000. Yeah. And I can speak from experience, like just because I've driven... When it's going or not. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I've driven a lot of $1,000 cars and um, some of them have been safe family vehicles, but you can always sell it for about $1,000 and put that towards the next car. And uh, Thanks, Obama. (laughs) Cash for clunkers. 
<laughs> that was actually a really, really bad financial move yes, for a lot was. of people. But it's fun to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. I, you know, just the last thing I'll say about leases, and this is not things that you should do, but I have, uh, I've seen a situation or two where, um, Folks have a couple of leases and, uh-oh, we're hitting our max mileage. What do we do? We go get a third lease. Oh, my goodness. Don't don't get more leases. That's not <laughs> that's how you get out of the lease cycle. <laughs> so there would be a, a, a way to not take care of it. But that just shows you how violent that cycle can be. Yeah. And it seems it's really attractive because it is just... It's just a monthly just, payment. Just a monthly payment. And a lot of times, at least, you don't even feel it because those will be a lot lower of a payment because there's so many other rules. So it could be $200 a month. Yeah, on the surface, those look so much more attractive when you look at the lease payment versus, you know, if you're buying it. But, but you're not going to work out financially ahead for you. No. All right. So, All right. Jason, I, I think uh, we discussed some really fun, well, practical stuff. Let's distill it down for our listeners. The distillates, Caleb. Yeah. Number one to take away from this is that I think a good rule of thumb is spending 10% of your income or less or 5% of your net worth or less on a car when you buy a car. I like it. Number two, buying a used car, like two to three years old, will save you most of the depreciation and not increase maintenance costs too much. Yeah, you might even have some warranty left over at that You point. can probably get a warranty on a two or three year old car. Mm-hmm. I, that's, where, that's the car that you should buy. Yeah. And what's the third point? Uh, people spend too much on stuff they don't need. So That's true. don't get pressured into buying a car to reward yourself. Don't get pressured into buying a car to impress a bunch of people. There are You may have a job where it might be reasonable to have a nice car, but you don't need a high-end nice car. Nobody knows how much you paid for a 2012 Honda Accord, and they look usually pretty good. Or 2018 nowadays. Well, I think take care of what you've got. One way or the other, yeah. if, you, if you've got a if you've got a five thousand dollar car and you take care of it and you keep it nice and clean, again at, at a certain point, I don't care what you're driving. If it's a Lexus or if it's a, a Honda, a ten year old car is a ten year old car and it's worth about the same. Uh, I don't think that it, it makes a huge difference in a lot of people's eyes. We're financial advisors, and I think it's really this this is a fun episode because. I think a lot of people expect us to drive really nice cars to show that we're really good at what we do. But on the other side of the, the coin, you've got people who say, I don't know, that's a really nice car. What's he doing with my money? <laughs> yeah, our job is a weird one because people do expect us to, to dress a little nicer and have nicer cars. And we, you and I just don't care about we cars. don't. <laughs> I would rather actually be financially independent. Yeah, I'd rather have money. Yeah. <laughs> So calls to action, Jason. Uh, really, my only call to action is, is follow my rules. <laughs> I put sell your car. Sell your car. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you've got too much of a car, consider selling it. Um, but you don't have to do that. If you have any other questions, please let us know. I'm happy to talk about your specific situation on the phone or in person uh, because this is something I've had a lot of fun working through with lots of people. Caleb, what's happening in the Speakeasy this week? Well, we've got some more new members. Um, the Speakeasy is our Facebook group dedicated to this here old-fashioned finance podcast. Uh, if you haven't joined, folks, and you're listening, what are you waiting for? Get out there and join. We've got do it now. We've got fun conversations about drinks. We've got conversation, uh, some finance trickling in there, which I would like to see more of. Uh, questions and things of that nature, and shenanigans. I mean, we Everyone's did a poll. Favorite. 
What's everybody's favorite part of the show? And shenanigans is up there. It's ranked high. Real Su- high. Surprisingly high. <laughs> I was starting to wonder. I don't know. Um, do people actually like the shenanigans? Apparently, it's a vital part of the show. Again, like last week, I'm going to shout out some of our new members in the Speakeasy. And if you're not hearing yourself on this list, get out there and join. We're having a great time on the Speakeasy. So this week, Jason, we've got Josh Font, John Miller, Scott Moore, Matthew French, Alfredo Francisco Pena, Vaughn Davis, John Cadell, Michael Wall, Dan Cumberland, Kane Creek Allen, Sean Rigsby, Jeff Knight, Christy Wallace, Casey Spitnail, Bo Cumberland, Alice Pinkerton Crosby, and Lisa Lowry. All new on the Speakeasy this week. That's Holy a lot of folks. Cow! The Speakeasy is on fire! It is hot. It's hot. It's so hot right now. <laughs> Speakeasy. If you haven't joined, send a, a request to join the Speakeasy. Start up the conversation about finance, drinks, all of the above. It's just a fun place to be us and you together. All right. Folks, thanks for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. (laughs) I think that was great. Us and you together. Us and you together. (laughs) I'm a moron. All right. That's probably where the end goes, right?